Welcome to Results May Vary. This is a podcast to help you design your life. Tracy and I have worked in the field of design and innovation for over 17 years between us. We've helped sustain a food revolution for Jamie Oliver and redesign the way LA County votes. We've even engaged the most creative minds in science by turning their genetic information into music at the TED conference. Throughout our careers, we always wondered, what if we took this same creative problem-solving process we use to help well-known organizations solve their toughest challenges and applied it to people's lives? Would it work? Would anyone listen to us? And maybe even scarier, what would happen if they did? Results May Vary is a thoughtful experiment to see just what happens when you set out to intentionally design your life. In our last episode, aging and climate change expert Dr. Mick Smyer shared his vision for Grain Green, a movement which aims to engage more older adults in taking impactful action on climate change. Today we introduce you to Sandra Cooley, a community architect dedicated to creating extraordinary places that focus on fostering human connection. As she practices the business and art of placemaking, Sandra is an advocate of thoughtful design and innovative problem solving. Starting her career as a teacher in a rich and vibrant inner city school system, over the years Sandra has learned that community is local and personal, so in her work in her daily life, she's always looking to connect with others in a more meaningful way. Today she shares her story and experiences with us, including her five steps for building community well-being. Sandra, hello, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Tracy. A question to get us started is, if you're out at a dinner party and meet somebody new, how do you describe what you do for a living? Not well. It is always one of those, uh, I can usually describe it well by speaking of a specific thing I'm working on rather than talk about what I do, because there's something deeply intangible about the way in which we get to creating community in new places. And so it's almost as if, oh, it's exactly what we're doing with community. It's as if you have to experience it to understand it. And I've always felt one of the things that is so challenging for us in new places is previewing what life will be like before there's a community. And that's why I think I have a hard time describing it. Yeah, I feel like you described our challenge in a nutshell as well. It's like, mm-hmm. how do you how do you apply design thinking to business or even to life? You have to experience a little bit of it before you know what that even means. Sandra, I've often thought of you as, as if there are architects of physical places and architects of roads and infrastructure, et cetera. I've always thought of you as the community architect, you know, the one that puts together the more of the emotive parts of a place. And is that a fair is that a fair assessment or can you correct me? I think that I am part of the team that does that. Yes. I think that's a very fair assessment. And of course, those things are done not by a single person, but by a team of people. And usually, interestingly enough, by the people who will be coming to live there, to buy a home there, to visit there, to go to school there. So it is an effort by a bunch of people. And then uh, it's that whole thing that is intriguing in our business is how do you discern from what people say what they mean? And then what are the applications of those things in a real place? 
It's really fun, actually. How did you get involved in this in the first place? I taught inner city schools for seven years. Really loved the communities in which I worked and found them to be rich and amazing and full of life and wonderful people. And when I left teaching and went into the development world, I realized I had learned so much from teaching school and being in these neighborhoods and understanding the people whose kids were in my classroom and what they ate for dinner and what they did for fun, that it seemed like a really easy next step to take some of that same learning and apply it to new community development. It's just being observant of people and then seeing what brings them joy. And you can find that anywhere in the world. It cuts across all socioeconomic groups. Love that you discovered that in inner city neighborhoods where I feel like there's maybe a stereotype in those environments that community isn't present or it isn't valued, but it it seems like in your experience, which is probably similar to so many people's experience, that the opposite was true. It was massively true and really encouraging in terms of what public education can do. I think I've never left behind that notion of teaching. And Chris, that's probably what you and I have done together with groups of people when we're working on a place like Toto Santos or Asbury Park in New Jersey. It's understanding what's there and having the insight to appreciate the things, I mean, really listening to people and hearing what brings them joy. The universals in community can be in old places or new places. We talked about the Happy Planet Index where an economics professor in the UK was asked by the government, British government, to figure out what is it that brings people a sense of wellness and happiness. And he elicited from talking to a bunch of people all over the world, actually, that there were five things that make for great well-being and great community. The first one was connect. The second one is be active. The third, take notice. The fourth, keep learning. And the fifth one is give. I have found in my work that if we take these five components of well-being and put them into a community, it's remarkable what kinds of inspiration all the team players from the landscape architect, the architect, the people running the schools, the grocery stores, if they think with this as the construct, it is quite wonderful what they will do with it. And the beauty of these five things is they're all free. What are some examples where those five things are all firing in a very vibrant way and communities alive and well? I think of a couple of places, two very different places. One's in Utah and the other one's in Boston. And the cultures are very different in those two states. And all five things are vibrantly alive. The place in uh, Salt Lake City is pretty interesting because it's a development by Rio Tinto, which is a mining company. And it was the land that was left over as they've been mining the Bingham Mine for over 100 years. And it's very rare that you would have uh, mining in a first world city this close to downtown Salt Lake City. And what Rio Tinto did 12 years ago was think about what kind of community could we create in this place 
that would bring to life those five aspects of great community and have people want to live here on smaller lots with more expensive houses and share resources in the uh, open space, the open public space, the schools. In, in this particular community in Daybreak, the school has a 18-hour use, not just as a school, but it's used seven days a week. And it's used for all kinds of things beyond teaching kids from eight to four. So it is a really beautifully integrated community that has, I, I uh, was at the MIT Age Lab and we were talking about this place because interestingly enough, whether you're eight years old or you're 80 years old, Daybreak works well for both groups. You don't need to drive to enjoy this place. It's a place where you can get around by foot. Um, there's a train that takes you up to Salt Lake City. Uh, there are bike lanes. Uh, there are community gardens. There's a little retail street that has everything you would want in it, including a barbershop, a one-chair barbershop. And interestingly enough, Kisco Senior Living has put a new community for independent living and, and assisted living right in the heart of Daybreak. And the integration of the old people with the young people is a vivid example of these five things working together. The keep learning works both ways. The young kids with the old people and the old people teaching the young kids. It's, um, it's a beautiful thing to see. If you go to Boston, which is actually Plymouth, Massachusetts, where Plymouth Rock is, there was 3,000 acres of land left, 3,000 acres of pine trees. The Pine Hills took over this piece of land 12 years ago, and the city of Plymouth, uh, it's a town, voted to let them develop the land instead of turning this land into a park. And they were very concerned about not getting too many people with children to come into their overcrowded school system. So we designed the community to not engage big families. Nonetheless, we have families but we have a lot of people who are boomers like me. And the contribution of the Pine Hills to the town has been phenomenal. So again, it's like you create a new community. There's no boundary to community. We, when we create new places, they are joined with the old places that were there before them. And in both Utah and in Massachusetts, these five things are really valued enormously by both sets of people who live there. How do you integrate the two? So uh, obviously the new is a little bit easier because you know who you're designing for, but how do you pave the way for the old community to feel comfortable with this new path forward? We use food. I know we're all in the farm to table notion of food and craft food and healthy food and we're very concerned about food being an important part of our communities. We have found that if we bring people together over food, it could be a soup, it could be a potluck dinner where people bring the food, it can be something hosted by a local farmer. If we bring together people who live in our community or might be coming to live in the community with people who are already a part of Plymouth or already a part of Salt Lake City, and we sit and have the what we call dinners and conversations with no specific questions about 
do you want a four-bedroom house? Do you want a K-8 school? But rather a dinner where people talk together about what's important to them. It is a very connecting experience that brings all the new community together. In the case of the Pine Hills, we thought about putting a market into the community after it was about eight years old. And we did a series of dinners and conversations with um, people who lived in Plymouth, people who lived in the Pine Hills, people who lived in other parts of the South Shore and found <laughs> universal agreement about what they would want in a market. And we uh, built this tiny little market, 13,500 square feet. We were worried would it have enough people to come to it. And it has been a phenomenal success because we listened to the people who were going to come to the market and we created a market where the butcher knows their name, where there are tips on healthy eating, where we put it right next to the wine store so they could grab a bottle of wine. And it has just become a regional magnet far beyond the Pine Hills. Sandra, as we talk about um, successful communities, what are examples out there of things people have done either through their behaviors or through the design that are guaranteed community killers? Things you hear people complaining about, but unfortunately may not exactly kill community, but certainly make it diminished, is this notion of cookie cutter and the idea that there's a formula that can be applied without listening to what the local desires are. So if people feel something has come into their community that is a foreign body, they will resist it and they will work against it and they will even make up stories about why it's a bad place. So it would be tone deaf developer creating a community that he might see as wonderful. Let's just give an example of a builder who just got back from visiting Brittany and decided all the architecture should be like Sam Mallow and should be French country. In New Mexico, that probably wouldn't be the right architectural design. So that would be a community killer. I think sometimes we don't create ways for people to communicate within community. So if we haven't set up an association that brings the people together regularly, when it's new, they will be siloed and you know go in their garage and not see their neighbors. So I'm curious, in these communities, they're planned, there's sort of leadership around it, there's associations. I live in San Francisco, and I live in a pretty neighborhood-y neighborhood, but there's no real leadership guiding us forward. And I'm wondering, as somebody who doesn't have that in their neighborhood, or maybe even is a renter or transient, not sure how long they're going to be there. How does somebody connect to those around them in an easier way? Actually, in San Francisco, I saw a really incredible thing where it was through art. Somebody was doing an art project in an open space pop-up gallery that engaged the community with a question. I think they were looking for additional green space in their little neighborhood. The artist passed out flyers and invited people to come. I think that shared interests sometimes are the way to connect. I would say your coffee shop. I just finished reading uh, Patty Smith's book on M-Train, and the power of a coffee shop is pretty remarkable in terms of 
convening community. And then almost all cities have got some kind of community outreach, a neighborhood council, or with technology. It's, it's pretty easy to find people in your neighborhood who might share your interests. So I think actually it's probably easier than it's ever been. I don't know. Have you done it in your neighborhood? No, it's interesting. There's there's one thing that has kind of rallied the neighborhood. There's a little garden. It's called Little City Gardens, and it's the only urban garden in San Francisco. There was an empty lot just on the street next door to me. And a few years ago, a couple of gardeners were like, hey, we want to turn this into something. And the owner leased the property to them to do so. Just recently, the property was sold to school and they initially were going to build, you know, like a lower school and incorporate the garden into their plans. And then once they got the land, they submitted plans and they were completely different and really took over the whole space. There's no space for the the garden. And, you know, the concerns in the neighborhood are that it's going to increase traffic on a one-way street and it's in a flood zone. And so that's not great. And, and some neighbors just sort of spontaneously started this Save the Farm campaign. And all they did was passed out eight and a half by 11 sheets of printed paper, yellow, that say Save the Farm. And almost all of the neighbors have put them up in their windows to show support. And I loved the spirit of that. It was so simple. I mean, it shows the value of this tiny little property that had been an empty lot for years. It was kind of an eyesore that people cared enough about it and felt compelled to want to continue incorporating it into our community. And I don't think that anyone is anti-school, but we're, we're pro integrating the two together and finding a way to make it work. I, I love that. I love that whole story and that, that it's so visible. You can see how much support exists for Save the Farm. I would say, having been a teacher, that there's undoubtedly a teacher who will be at that school who would share the community's sense of, I, I think it was E.O. Wilson, you know, the biologist from Harvard who said it's wired into our DNA to love gardens. And that what it's, it seems there's probably a really good possibility, even if it's container gardening on the roof of a school, that somehow you and they could create, or, or like Ron Finley did, where you do the, the parking out between the sidewalk and the street, where you do a garden in that space. If you've got that much community engagement, you want to harvest that passion for the neighborhood and aim it at something with a sense of positive effort that will result in something where the kids and all the people who live in the neighborhood benefit. It's that notion that how can we come together for good things as opposed to opposition? It sounds like your neighborhood, they want to do something positive rather than just stop the school. And I think that communication is the key to community cooperation. In in the new home or the development business, and Chris, we saw this at Todos Santos, silos don't make for great community. When the teams talk together, and I would say your neighborhood and the school are a team talking together, that's when great things happen. Just people working together with common purpose. I'm going to make an assumption here that I, I don't have any evidence to base it on, but I'm going to assume that 
a very large portion of the population outsources or sort of leaves community to those that are natural community makers. And they sort of stumble upon it on occasion, but for the most part, just aren't contributors overall. And I would say that might be a natural tendency, but I think a lot of people would reference just busyness as being the primary reason they don't really contribute to their community. And I I wonder if you could share an example of how busy people united with little time and actually successfully created community. People are busier than ever. Uh, there's, There's a fantastic book by Sherry Turkle called Alone Together. And I think the subhead is why we expect more from technology and less from each other. It's that notion you have an excuse because you're really busy and you don't have time. Colorado State University and Toto Santos, there were a small number of people who worked with some people on the ground in Toto Santos to think about what in the world could we do if we put an ag school from Colorado in a community in Baja, California. And one of the ways in which they made it real was they worked with Mexican nationals from La Paz and San Juan del Cabo to set up these little, kind of like the dinners and conversations we referenced earlier, inviting people to come together and talk about what's important to you. And the idea that you are invited to come have a meal and say what's important to you without somebody giving you a list of things that's important to you is the way in which community engagement is constant. Once people are involved, they stay involved and they feel invested in the future of what's going to happen because whoever invited them to come talk actually listened to them. And I think if I could just just throw it over to the Save the Farm, it could even be somebody, Chris, who's never done much of anything in community engagement, but saw the opportunity of this school going in across the street that if they just made a call, didn't do an email, or walked over and talked to the principal, I think people are yearning for opportunities to be engaged if it's not going to be a waste of their time. You yourself lead an interesting life. Give us examples of community in your own personal day-to-day. I have a wonderful life. And one of the things I do is I ride a bike a lot, like a street bike. I ride around my city. And since it's Los Angeles, it's pretty darn huge. I joined a group called Ride Arc about 10 years ago, which every once a month on Friday nights at 930, we would ride around and look at architecture and anthropology and go all over the city, 930 at night till 130 in the morning. And about five years ago, I heard about something called Cicla Via, which was about 12 people got together and said, we don't have a lot of parkland in L.A., but we've got a lot of streets. What if one day a year we closed down a street like Wilshire Boulevard for 10 miles and let everybody come out on a Sunday and join together with all the other people who live in L.A.? And so Ciclavia was born. And I was deeply interested in this phenomenon in my own huge town of 12 million people. And I raised my hand to join the board. And I have met some of the most amazing people ever that have no, they would never cross paths with me any other way in my work or, you know, where I go to the gym or where I uh, go to the symphony. 
they're people I wouldn't have known except for Ciclavia, and they're some of my favorite people of all time. So it's kind of looking for things you're interested in, going in new avenues of engaging those things, and perhaps, because for me, as a leading-edge boomer, I would like to leave my city better than I found it. And things like Ciclavia feel very, very actively engaged in making community deeply relevant. Now now we have a 10 times a year, we close streets, and they happen all over the city, and all kinds of people are involved. And we just got a new executive director who was the deputy mayor for Villa, Villa Ragosa and took, chose to come run Ciclavia because he's so passionate about what it means to L.A. Obviously, there's the work you're involved in, and then and then nationwide efforts. Are you bullish on community right now, or how do you feel about the overall societal trends right now in terms of community making? Black Lives Matter. On that trend, I feel deeply depressed since I figure it's the arc of my entire life that we're still talking about some something as fundamental as the color of your skin. So, but I feel as if there's a lot of light shined on this conversation. Well, I'm a pretty huge optimist. And in all the places that I'm working, I, I'm, I'm working in Charleston, South Carolina. And one of the um, members of our team, this really amazing guy, um, J.A. Moore, his sister was one of the people who was killed in the church in Charleston. And the way in which that town healed and came together and joined as one is probably one of the most remarkable things I've ever seen in my life. Through music and food and church and singing and voice and listening and coming together as a town, they are healing in amazing ways. So this guy, J.A. Moore, this is pretty interesting. He runs our coffee shop. We have a new community, very difficult if you think about it. The owner of this land, they grow trees. And in the last few years, Charleston has just gotten huge, a lot of manufacturing, great jobs. And the, they've grown outside of Charleston to the ring around it where the trees are. So the population has grown out to where this community, this Midwest Vaco was the name of the tree people, have land that can now be turned into new office, residential, retail, where people live and go to school. And the challenge was, how do you take what is in Charleston, which is pretty unbelievably wonderful, and bring it out to a brand new, brand new community? So what they did is they brought people like J.A. Moore, who's in the food business. He runs the cafe. That is where people, that's our sales office, the um, corner house cafe that J.A. runs. You can get a, a latte. You can get a donut. You can, you can get a conversation. You can sign up to um, work in their community garden. You can see the performing arts school. You can look at a house. You can ride a trail. You can hear about the tree harvest, and through this young man, you've got a sense of Charleston repotted in a new community. And one of the ways we did this, which I thought was pretty interesting, we did something called a slow share. 
back to Sherry Turkle and the notion of alone together in technology. We took, at, there's a huge thing in Charleston called the Wine and Food um, Conference, and we took a booth there and we created this place that was like Summer's Corner, and we had uh, 22 mailboxes, those old silver mailboxes with the little red flags on them, and we had typewriters and postcards, and we invited people to write a, a postcard or type a letter to a friend, and we would mail it for them. Well, it was unbelievable how many people wanted to do that. And because we mailed the letters for them, over 2,000 people participated. We got the most incredible insights into what's on people's minds, including one postcard that was addressed to heaven. And so we took the slow share that we had the wine and food in Charleston, and we put it in the Corner House Cafe. And when people come in to get a coffee and talk to J.A., they can also write a letter or write a postcard about anything that's on their mind. And we have found this slow share to give us some of the best insights into community building we could ever hope to hear. So different from having people sit in a focus group room and <laughs> behind a one-way mirror or two-way mirror and share their, their thoughts. I, I think Chris said it, and I certainly felt it for years, maybe 20 years ago. I'm like, I'm done with these. Chris said we call them the F groups, and we don't do the F groups. In my opinion, that is not the way people are going to reveal to you their innermost thoughts. We, we quite often will do um, collages where at the dinner and conversation, we'll say, describe a favorite childhood experience, and they'll cut and paste pictures, and then they'll talk about their collage, and usually... I'm not usually, every single time, an insight will come out that will have application for the community that we're creating. I, I, I read a great book by, um, I can't remember her name, um, a reporter for the LA Times, and the book is called Inventing Desire. She spent a year living at Shiat Day, right around the time Steve Jobs was doing Think Different. And her whole notion in writing Inventing Desire was how in the world do you invent desire for a computer or a taco. You may remember Yo Quiero Taco Bell. In that year, talked about what the magic of marketing, almost like we believe in the farm, a yellow piece of paper. It's a symbol. So the thing that has always struck me as a person in the business of selling home, we don't have to invent desire. It lives in everybody's heart. We simply have to connect to that desire and make a place for it in our communities. I think that's so powerful because you're right. I mean, I, I spent 10 years in advertising where I felt like I was inventing desire and mm -hmm. it never felt real. I mean, it never felt valuable to the people who were on the receiving end of whatever the product or service was. And, and that was why I really loved the work that I was able to do at IDEO and now beyond, which is to listen to people and simply make it easier for them to access those things. That same place in Salt Lake City, wonderful daybreak, uh, I was working with one of the builders who sells homes there. And he said to people, we were sitting around, you know, d doing the dinner and conversation. He said, what are the three reasons you bought here? And they immediately went into focus group mode. They said, price, square footage, floor plan. So about 15 minutes later, I said, what are the three things you would tell your friends about your neighborhood? 
And one of the three was at night when they walk as the sun's going down with their kids and their dogs, the mountains glow a kind of pink, beautiful light. And that's not the kind of thing you're going to get if you don't listen to people and allow them to not fit into a box of conformity. When they come in to find a house, they're disarmed by the Corner House Cafe in Summer's Corner because they're offered a coffee and a conversation. When they go into a sales office in Irvine, California, they immediately go into, I want a three-bedroom house. This is my price range. How quickly can I get away from you, the salesperson, and run go see the models? Developers don't have the best reputation. And a critic might say, okay, I get it. You know, the developer wants to create community, but ultimately the end goal incentive is to make a lot more money. So is the community really authentic community or is it just a quick way to make more money? So I'd be curious, you've you've worked in this industry. Can you shed a little bit of light into that? And is the modern developer a more noble role than it has been historically? No. The modern developer is not a noble role. The modern developer does something noble that it has to do with energy savings and um, doing really smart buildings. So in that regard, I would give almost everyone in the business credit for building better homes that are more energy efficient, that live better and cost less to run, and, and floor plans are more efficient. So in that regard, they are good. And they are driven by, if they're a public builder, they're driven by, you know, the quarterly reports. The interesting question or the conundrum is if you want to go faster for, you know, closing more houses more quickly, that is not necessarily going to develop the best community or get the best return on the land which you're consuming. And once it's consumed, you don't have any more of. So the interesting question would be, if you were deeply thoughtful about this place you're creating and you did it really well and you did it with patience, I I would think of Seaside in uh, Florida, the panhandle of Florida. In the end, you're going to have something truly remarkable. It, and there are even public builders who are doing good work on that. Um, Rio Tinto, Daybreak is really quite wonderful. But it's hard because you're pushed by Wall Street and you're pushed by quarterly results and year-end numbers. And in fact, people would be paid more if they were pushed by what true community is. Look at Apple. Look at that product. I remember when the Apple Store opened in Santa Monica and... The iPhone was for sale, and I asked the salesperson there, who's buying these? He said, we had a big surprise. And I said, what's that? And he said, a whole lot of people who can barely afford a phone. A ton of them came in and bought phones. And I said, so it's not just the rich people? And he said, no, it's the people who see this as a tool to everything they need in one device in their hand. And I I had another one of these big aha moments, Chris. Um, I was at Grand Central Market downtown a couple of weeks ago. It, this is a place that's 100 years old, and you can get a $2 taco or a $7 coffee under the same roof. So it everybody is convened at this table in L.A. And I was standing in line for the $7 coffee, and behind a guy 
who ordered a $4 coffee. And I started chatting with him and said, where do you work? He worked at the bridal shop a couple blocks away. And I said, do you come here every day? And he said, just for the last five months. And I said, how's that? And he said, my grandfather always told me, great coffee doesn't need sugar or cream. And one day, a guy who works in the bridal shop with me went to get us coffee. I gave him a $5 bill. He came back with this cup of coffee and a dollar change. And I'm like, hey, man, McDonald's does not charge that kind of money for a cup of coffee. And the guy said, oh, I tried out this new place in Grand Central. And this guy who worked at the coffee shop said, I've never gone back to McDonald's. Sometimes I think we underestimate what people want because we look at what they can afford. And I'm not talking about a terribly expensive house. I'm talking about community where people are given the option of having treats, whether it's the iPhone or it's a cup of $4 coffee at GMB. That's amazing. You're, as you were telling that story, I couldn't help but think if a, if a developer could be discerning around who came in and that there was a community contract <laughs> that people had to sign saying, saying they were actually going to do their part. A friend of mine, I was having coffee with him yesterday. He said, I, I've been cramming all my community hours into the school this week because we're supposed to commit 30 hours by the end of the year. And I said, is that, is that a private school? And he said, no, it's a public school. And I said, the public school demands that every parent commits 30 hours? And he said, yeah. And my first question to him was, how do they enforce it? And he said, I don't know, but there's this social contract and there's all kinds of things you can do and every parent gets involved because this school has the contract. And I thought, how cool is that? And what if you had that commitment you know, when you went into a neighborhood that you were going to contribute a certain amount of time to it. I, I love that. I'm going to steal that idea immediately because <laughs> it goes back to, to Nick Marks and that whole notion of give. You know, people feel better. They're happier. They've got better well-being. The Happy Planet Index would say, yeah, give them the opportunity and a little bit of obligation to do it. I love that idea. The uh, notion of community... Uh, you know, in a modern technical age, what are you seeing that gives you a lot of hope where your work meets technology in terms of community? As we said earlier, all people are too busy. Technology lightens that load. It's just a, a much more efficient way to get out the HOA and share news and connect people for the basics of what it's like to be in community. It's easier in some ways to buy a house. It's um, you know, before people even arrive in our communities, they know so much before they even get there. And usually they've read the mommy blog and they've looked at social media and Instagram and they're coming in more informed. It allows them to make a quicker decision if they are ready to, you know, move their family. So there's just, there's a ton of ways in which it it's really terrific. They can do their shopping online in terms of picking stuff at the design center for their home, you know, the the countertops and the flooring and lighting. It just gives them time. And that's pretty awesome. Totally going to switch gears just because I'm super curious about this. <laughs> I saw that you became a looper for the X Prize and oh. 
I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. Sorry, my nerd side is totally showing. <laughs> yeah, well, you'll love how I randomly did it. I went to, I worked for the people who did the Hercules campus. We, they own the Spruce Goose Hangar, and they did the YouTube space at Playa Vista in L.A. And I went to a community gathering because I just let, thought, wow, every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6, you can go to YouTube and you can hang out with people. You just have to sign up online and you can come. And so that night, uh, the the um, XPRIZE people were there, and they had this unbelievably cool airplane. And if you signed up that night and became a looper, you got the airplane on – it was like a static airplane. And my husband flew fighter jets. And I'm like, that is the coolest present I could ever get for Dan. So <laughs> I signed up a, two years ago to be a looper and randomly I got the plane, but the the insight into XPRIZE has been unbelievably priceless because they have workshops. They teach us how to do, you know, challenges, XPRIZE challenges. You meet like physicists from Caltech. It's again that notion of how do you get out of the neighborhood in which you live and work and get into the broader diversity of a city like LA and just celebrate what's right there if you just go a slightly different path. So I love the looper thing. It's It's been wonderful. I'm so glad I asked. <laughs> That's a great story. And it totally connects to our topics. Okay. It sounds like you're in the complete right profession. Well, I love what you guys do. And I have been deeply influenced and learned so much from Chris and working with him. And um, he's tough. That's one of the things I think is important in this um, notion of building community. It's not easy. It's tough. It's demanding. Ideas are cheap. you got to figure out how to do stuff, not just talk about it. And, and Chris has just been amazing working with a ton of the people I work with and helping us get there. Sandra, the whole podcast is, is about this notion of wouldn't it be cool if you could flip design skills and apply it to, to your own individual life? You, you do this at scale, right? If you think about community, it's ultimately helping a lot of people unite and, and live better, as you reference, you know, the five ways to achieve wellness, et cetera. Through your experiences and, and life, is there advice you would give our audience that are getting after it and trying to optimize their lives for, for wellness? And is there, are there any parting thoughts you'd leave them with? I feel like I'm still designing, <laughs> and I wish somebody had told me a couple of things earlier. So, yeah, I think that travel is just inherently amazing. And I don't mean you have to go to Europe. I mean you can travel in a car trip. I just think travel takes you away from your daily work to see people in different situations. And I think Airbnb is pretty interesting in terms of allowing people to travel into neighborhoods you'd never get to see otherwise, stuff like that. So travel would be one thing. I am a huge believer in reading and reading widely of, of anything. And then it took me getting fired from my job at age 38 to really stop fearing uh, failure and risk. If I hadn't been fired from my job at age 38, I think I would like still be sitting in that office out there in the valley working really hard 
and not have had such an amazing life as I've had. When I was fired, my boyfriend, now husband, said to me, you know, if you think about it, when you were a school teacher, you ran your own business. So perhaps you should do that again. And it has been amazing for me to pick and choose who I would work with. I mean, now I have the luxury of totally doing that completely. But finding in anybody I worked with when I first started my business, my first job was in Las Vegas, a town that I'm not particularly in love with. But there's always something interesting everywhere you go. And just open your heart and your mind and your brain to uh, new experiences and just go for it. There's one last book I'd like to recommend for all those people. (laughs) And it's called <laughs> Orbiting the Giant Hairball. This is perfect. This is a guy who was a creative director for Hallmark Cards in Kansas City for 48 years. And when he retired, he wrote this book. If you buy that book, it'll give you 10 more ideas about how to orbit in your life. I love it. Thank you so much. You've you've given us so many great resources to reference for people. So I really appreciate that in particular. Um, I usually will collect all of the things that people talk about in an episode and list them on the website. And so thank you for all of the generous ideas. You're welcome. And thanks for your ideas, Chris. I'm going to use that one immediately, engaging people in a community contract. That's awesome. Yeah. It's like Burning Man, right? Like everyone has to give, leave no trace. I love it. Cool. All right. Sandra, thank you so much. This has been amazing. You're lovely, and I love what you're doing so much. Thanks, Tracy. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Sandra. Great talking with you, and uh, we'll see you soon. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. That was great. That was fun. She's she's just a bundle of really positive energy and and backs it up. So yeah, she's great. absolutely. I mean, I just when you first told me about the work she was doing at Toto Santos in particular, I was attracted to her story just because I'd been down there and it's this really lovely small community with a big art scene and obviously rich Mexican culture and just knowing that people were considering the community that already exists as they're building this new future really was amazing to hear about. Yeah, we didn't talk about it much, but the the way that that project's designed is that the the local fishermen and farmer have as not as much weight in the development as any as any hotel or you know serious investor would and so it's a way to keep keep everybody both engaged but also to keep the developer from you know resisting the temptation of just following the the short dollars that ultimately will kill community as we talked about so yeah so there are there are great stories like that unfortunately i wish there were a lot more of them well, it's nice um, to have some shining examples to point to, to exactly. know that it's possible. I mean, I think that she's sort of an example of, you know, in the design thinking process of talking to an expert or to an extreme. She's thinking about community on this extreme level, like you were saying, at scale. It's so different than how people think about it in their daily life, but there's wonderful lessons to be learned from her example. Yeah, and I having watched her in action in what she said today is 
she just has a great job of having people reframe the question they're asking about what a community is. So I, I really liked her builder example is, you know, so tell me I'm the builder. What, why'd you pick your house? And they say square footage and, you know, efficiency or whatnot. And so the, the idea that to ask the bigger question, which is, you know, what would you tell your friends about living here? Those things instantly drop. Not that they're not important, but that you have to create and design with the right questions in mind. And so I think she does a good job of getting people out of their normal mode and asking the bigger question and then elicit interesting, more emotive responses. It's great. Absolutely. And it's not even that giant a shift from the question, but that nuance it makes all the difference. Yeah, and I think that that un- unravels all the way down to the individual level, which is some of us might be asking the question, how could I carve a walk into my early morning to deal with my work day, right? And maybe the right question is, why is my work so deflating? Perhaps I should be rethinking this, right? So I think those meta questions also apply at an individual level that that you you really do have to step back and ask yourself the big ones at least every couple of years, you know, otherwise you're you're on a on a crash course towards really regretting it later. So yeah, I do like there's a pattern in the people we're talking to that they all share that whether Tara and, and her journey when she went to Harvard or we we heard about David Kelly and it's his uh, deals with God that he couldn't remember later. <laughs> right. These are. These were big moments that really shifted those folks. But I think the difference is these guys acted on it, and that was pretty cool. And the thing that I'm liking about what we're hearing as well is that it's not that they were all in this really privileged place to act upon. And and I love Sandra's example of breaking the myth that it's only it's only the wealthy that can afford something like good community. Right. Um, and so that was my favorite part about her example is that people – People crave it at all levels, and there is a way to produce it in a way that's worthwhile for everybody. Yeah, I remember um, I was I was really surprised by that example. Not surprised that lower socioeconomic communities have a strong sense of community, but just that she had experienced that and was sharing it more broadly. Because I feel like, like I mentioned with her, that we, as society, we kind of otherize people and especially people who live in poverty and like to think that they're less than human in certain ways. And I got a chance to visit Cape Town in South Africa. And, mm. you know, they do these tours where you can go meet with people who live in the in the slums outside of Cape Town, which I kind of was conflicted about going. It just seems like a, a strange offering, but because it helps support the communities, I thought I would I would do that but what I found interesting was just the deep interconnected sense of community there and one story kind of stood out to me the woman who'd given me the tour you know she was talking about how maybe in her neighborhood there's only one woman who owns a bathing suit but that if she was going to the beach that day she could just go into her house and borrow the bathing suit and didn't need to ask because it was shared property. And there was this understanding if the woman who owns it, isn't going to the beach, then somebody else should be able to enjoy it. 
Great example. I love that. I yeah. love that. Well, and also this was another part of it, which I think just points at the naivete that I have about, and especially at that point in my life, because this was about 10 or so years ago, um, about what people living in poverty, like what their lives are like. But the woman who came to pick me up for the, for the tour, she lived in this area and had grown up in this area. And she came and picked me up in this really nice car. And I was like, whoa, that's crazy. She's done really well for herself. And she had asked me if after the tour was done, if I wanted to go visit her house. And I said, sure, of course. And so I expected that we would drive back into Cape Town proper, where she obviously with this nice car has advanced, you know, but she just drove around the corner from where we'd, we'd been. And she had a larger house than the other people we were visiting, but she stayed in the community because that was her home. Mm, and I, yeah. I hadn't considered that until that moment, the power of the people that you know and that you've grown up with. Yeah, it's amazing. It's hard not to feel a little conflicted just in terms of, in one, in, on the one hand, community feels like it's a little lost and people aren't looking out for each other. But then, you know, if you look in a very modern way, we're it connected in ways we don't even realize now. And tools like Facebook are really interesting that way. I'd see most of my friends and I'm, I'm pretty caught up on them <laughs> just yeah. by seeing them. And I can, uh, one of the funniest times is I was on this bike ride and I saw my friend Matt and right, just kind of hadn't seen him for a while. And right off the bat, I was like, so did you get the toilets installed that you were working on? You know, just referencing <laughs> his Facebook feed. Right. <laughs> and you can kind of kick right back up. So I do think this hybridized version of of online, offline, I think the, the part that scares me is when they're when the offline's just dead completely. And yeah. so this idea of of leveraging tech to kind of carry you in between the offline encounters feels like an amazing blend. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm excited about that. But what concerns me is that we'll, we'll fill our busyness time with only, only the digital component, and then you killed the offline. So I think we're kind of figuring that out as we go, given that so many of these tools are still new. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I definitely use Nextdoor to keep mm-hmm. tabs on my neighborhood, what's going on, and, and I like that. There hasn't been a tipping point with it. There's still most people in the neighborhood aren't using it. But right. that example of Save the Farm really blew my mind, I have to say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, until until the lot had been sold, I would walk my dog by the farm. And I just, I mean, I felt drawn to it. It's just such an odd thing to have in the middle of the, you know, an urban environment. And it's it's really quite large. And... And I just felt drawn to it, and I'd always stop when I'd walk the dog and kind of just take a deep breath and cause me this moment to pause. And so when it was in danger, I I felt really bummed about it. And then to see this total grassroots campaign come up and to see how many people, not just were willing to put the signs in their window, but still months later have them up faded and you know mm-hmm. it's like people want to participate that's obviously a <laughs> low barrier to entry to put a sign on your 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 window but right. talking to Sandra really made me think well what is something that I could do that's maybe different than the typical political sphere of right. you know, calling my my representative and voicing my opinion I really liked her idea of just 
inviting the interested parties to come together and get to know one another because the shared values that we have are probably all very similar. I mean, yeah. we're, we're talking about a school and a garden. We're not, we're not talking about, you know, extracting oil from tar sands and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and fracking. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah, though, you're, you reminded me, though, one of the things I miss a lot having uh, in the Bay Area is coming from a region where we had real weather <laughs> is weather because weather would bond a community if there was the big storm coming everyone would hunker down and there'd be a snow day and all the kids would come outside and everyone would be out shoveling their driveways and whatnot and you would bond through the the triggers like that these outside triggers and we and you see that on a major scale one of it's always sad when you see natural disasters but and you'd never want them to happen, but you do see communities rally together, and that's one of the one of the the beauties not of a natural disaster, but a beauty of the outcome is that these communities bond. And so, yeah, sometimes these these triggers can really be helpful. Well, even as Sandra was talking about what had happened in Charleston and how right. as awful as that was, that it's actually been able to bring the community together and to allow people to heal together, which right. I think couldn't be more healthy. Exactly. Exactly. And when Sandra was talking about combining, you know, the, the young, younger kids with the older people, and I know that there's been a couple of stories about nursery schools where, you know, people who live in nursing homes kind of get put in the same environment and how mutually yes. beneficial that is. And I just think, yes. my goodness, that's such a great solution. I know. Yeah, it's like if you're going to build a senior center, always put a preschool downstairs. You yeah. Know? All right, that's a wrap. Thanks so much for listening. Our dream is to build a community of people who can create and take advantage of any opportunity that interests them. To do this really well, we'd love for you to participate. Try out and share back your own life design experiments. Or if you've already got a great story of how you've designed your life, we'd love to hear from you on our Facebook page or at resultsmayvarypodcast.com. Our website is also where you'll find show notes and links to all of the things we mentioned in the episode. And if you would be so kind, subscribe to the show and share your favorite episodes with friends. That'll let even more people start designing their own lives. A big thanks to the folks who help us make the show possible. Composer and filmmaker H.P. Mendoza for the Results May Vary theme music. Graphic designer Anessa Bramer for our logo. David Glazier for sound mixing. And team podcast for editing. And of course, thank you so much for listening to Results May Vary!